Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. The New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, beginning at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord.
This morning, it was a beautiful drive, wasn't it? Coming over and seeing how beautiful the world is, and New Haven seems so beautiful, and I must say, they did a great job. We should be encouraged by our, our men and women who worked so hard last night to clear out the roads. You know, um, this passage comes to us with an incredible history. Uh, it's a history that I hope and pray God will convey to you and me as we really bring to this text a very simple question, and that is, do we have the same kind of zeal? Today we would say more passion, but the kind of passion for the house of God, for the temple church of Jesus Christ, do we, do we share that passion? And if we did, what would it look like really today? In other words, how sacred is this place we call the assembly of God, the household of the living God, the temple dwelling place of God? Do we believe that? that? I know we live in an age where it almost seems crazy, where we have lost, I think, in culture generally, uh, a sense of reverence and awe that there could be a place in my city or town a place set apart that is like the axis of the world. It's like where the window of God opens up and descends upon us. What sociologists call axis mundi. They observe that there's not a culture in the world that does not have in their presence a place. And I emphasize place. A real place where it's treated as if it's the very axis of the world, axis mundi, where the whole world revolves around it because that is the place where there is some kind of, of transcendent power or experience that is more than memorialized but then becomes the place where you go. Strange, isn't it? And we talked about it in our podcast recently and had some fun with that, but... But that's something of what's happening here in this passage. And what I hope to do, and for those of you, by the way, in God's providence who were with us in Compline this week and we're moving through the uh, Gospel of John, it just happened, just happened, you know, that, that the passage in John that we looked at this week in Compline is the exact same event that took place here in Matthew. So you get a little bit of a in stereo, I hope, because there will be some over, overlap. But, but at the end of the day, I just want us to be met with the sense of incredible awe. And to do that, I want to take you through a brief history of the temple that would help you see how what happened here on this first century day uh, with Christ walking into the temple was, was something that, that is in perfect harmony with the kind of, of story that led up to it. And yet where one who is himself the true and living temple of God walks into his own temple that is meant to mediate his presence on earth. And we see this zeal. Father, would you pray, come to us. Help me so much, Lord. I need your help to bring just the power of this passage and particularly the way in which you have so meticulously set it up by the whole history of the world coming together in a place where Jesus shows his passion like, to my knowledge, Lord, no other passage I know of in the Gospels. 
Help us, Lord, to see Jesus and his passion for this sacred house of God. And help us, Lord, as well to be impacted and changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, very briefly then, I, I do want you just to get a feel for how central the temple is in our Bible. In other words, there is perhaps nothing more central at the very core and essence of what the Judeo-Christian religion is all about than it is about this temple presence. The only thing that would come close to it would be the covenant. The covenant that was, of course, placed into that, that temple in the Ark of the Covenant. And so it all begins, and again, this is going to be a very brief, I just, I'm not going to get into all the details, but you really can't start except for creation itself. For God very clearly articulates creation and particularly the Eden of creation as the temple of God. We see the spirit of God, the glory cloud, literally hovering over the waters, the same language that would appear every time the temple is described throughout the Old Testament. You see this, this Eden whose, whose interests, whose, whose opening into the world was on the eastern side, exactly where you see the entrance to the temple. You see Adam and Eve being excommunicated from this presence after the original sin, wherein the temple is, is, is protected by the sheriffim that, with the swords, the flaming swords, the very image of the curtain that you would have walked into if you were to go into the Holy of Holies. Language all over the place, the very imago Dei, Language that would depict the effort that would be put on a priest to demonstrate the earthiness of his flesh. But then on the outside, the glory of the precious gems that is revealed in the presence of flesh into the world. It's, it goes on and on, this holy, holy beginning of the world. And the beginning was nothing and void. Those words are used always as abominations to God. They're not moralless words. They're not describing just a reality, a situation. They're words that are used by the prophets to describe a world that has become an abomination to God. Into this abomination, God in his grace built a temple called Eden. And they began the story of Redemption. I could stop there. You see how central it is? It's, it's the very essence of what this world was supposed to be that we live in. But of course it goes on. Throughout the patriarchal presence, this same presence of God was mediated through Bethel and other likewise places where there would be a mound of stones in a place where God had met with the patriarchs. And in that place, it would become the house of God. Bethel means, quote, house of God. Bethel was, in short, the patriarchal place for covenant renewal and where God would bring the, the gospel to the patriarchs and where he would give them a commission into all nations to the patriarchs. That was the place, emphasize place, Axis Mundi, if you will, where God in a special way spoke to his people and brought them into himself. We read in Genesis 12 how there, this place of Bethel, he moved on the hill country 
and there of Bethel, and he pitched the tent with Bethel on the west, and, and then Al at the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and it invoked the name of the Lord. And surely then, he says, the Lord is, Jacob says this, the Lord is in this place, emphasize, and the he was not afraid and said, how awesome is this place, emphasized. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gateway to heaven, end quote. That's the meaning of temple. Think about that. Let that just sort of sink in. Of course, we move into the Exodus era and the Mosaic tabernacle the language of tabernacle is used 280 times in the Sinai covenant. There God met with the covenant people through the means of old covenant ordinances and sacraments and the preaching of his word, just like we're doing today. And no one disputes that this was the language of God's meeting or dwelling with his people. I will set my tabernacle among you, said the Lord, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and your God, and you shall be my people. There was nothing more sacred than to hear those words. I will dwell with you. I will not forsake you. The God of the cosmos. Here we had the axis mundi, the center of the universe. And I have a place. David, as we get to the David era, encountered with, had a great encounter with God. And this encounter was on what we know today as the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. It's the justification for building a temple on this site, as it is provided for us in the account in 2 Samuel 24, in which the angel of God appeared to David, commanding him to build an altar so as to offer sacrifices to God. Whenever you hear sacrifices to God, just hear preaching of the gospel. To bring the good news that your sins can be atoned for, that your sins can be forgiven freely and by grace through faith alone. It didn't require you getting up on that nasty altar. It required you have a sacrifice that was appointed by God. That's the key. An appointed sacrifice by God that he would therefore exert his justice owed us upon it. You saw it. You smelled the stench of it. You even touched its blood as it would be sprinkled over your household in times of trouble. That God has forgiven us. He has given us great mercy. There is nothing you could have done to more hurt these people than to take that temple away. Everything of the ultimate importance was there, this tabernacle among them, this tabernacle because it was a moving temple. It was a temple that went with Moses through the Exodus. And then David, of course, now finding himself there in Jerusalem was the first offering is consumed by the fire that fell from heaven there. And that's when God said to David, here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering." For Israel. Two very important aspects here to this. Notice again, it's called a house of God, the house of the Lord. It was a place for burnt offerings, aka 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. It represented God's special favor upon a special people set apart by his covenant love. It represented divine protection. Whenever people get in trouble, you can read about it in the Psalms during this very era. Oh, they would yearn for the dwelling place of God where they would, and it's described as a fortress. It's described as the most special, most safe, most beautiful place on the world. Nowhere was like that. Read the Psalms. You'll see it everywhere during this era. It represented the place where God spoke to them. Therefore, the temple became the single most important aspect of Israel's identity, together with the Torah or the covenant, during this monarchical era. And that explains why now we turn into the, towards the prophets and we start hearing a passion, a zeal for the house of the Lord in like manner to the one we see in Christ. God's judgment against the temple perversion. When this old covenant church began to take the tabernacle or the temple for granted, became casual about it, wanted to make it more accessible and easy to get to. And so they adopted certain practices by the culture that would have felt more comfortable to the culture. And in doing that, they began to, 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 to worship not where God, down to that sacred place, but they would begin to move that worship into places that made it more comfortable and convenient for people. Because that's what the pagan gods had done. I mean, you've got to compete with them, Right? Well, yeah, humanly speaking, you better start competing with them. But what if you really believe the place is sacred? That God don't meet over there if he says he's going to meet here. You see what was getting lost? Ezekiel comes to the scene and he talks about syncretism. How the temple of God was getting desecrated. Because God was no longer really the center of worship. For they mixed Yahweh worship with popular contemporary rituals. Just let that sink in a little bit. Forms and circumstances borrowed from various secular or pagan contexts. There was no such thing really as secular. And secondly, he said this temple was misappropriated for nationalistic purposes, such that foreigners were being excluded from God. I want you to hear two things. The very core or the crux of the temple being its sacrificial system in a place where there would be a, 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 a place, an altar to sacrifice had been desecrated. That's like saying desecrating justification, absolution, atonement, mercy, grace, all of it. That's like saying the gospel left the temple. And then with this desire to identify with the temple and to co-opt God for their own nation's sake of Israel. Nation of Israel is distinguished from, say, the church of Israel. They come together in this period of history, but they're distinguishable. Paul will later talk about that when he says, not all Israel's true Israel. Not all those who are the nation of Israel are really truly the people, the redeemed people of Israel. Now, what does that look like? Well, I think we know. I don't think I need any commentary. 
the way in which this tribe or that tribe wants to co-opt God and the whole temple in a way that would diminish or in any way keep away and distinguish others that can't worship here. And so that became a cause of excluding the Gentiles from coming to God rather than inviting them in to be converted by God. Jeremiah, you heard it well. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching. When I read that right now in front of you publicly, it almost takes my, my breath away. I too am watching. Their prophecies were vindicated. In 587 BC, one can only imagine the humiliation that accompanied the destruction of the temple by Babylonians, creating a huge theological crisis where Israel's theologian prophets would write about it nonstop. What does this mean? What does this mean? We have no temple. The first time since Eden, no temple. You just can't imagine it unless we're really into the story here. They were driven away, the people of Israel, from the temple in Jerusalem into exile, Ezekiel being one of them. And yet, Ezekiel, like the other prophets, had a great vision. After spending about half the book explaining this destruction of the temple and why it was destroyed by God, ultimately, even if using the hands of the Babylonians, that there was a promise for temple restoration. He says, quote, the Lord would return to this temple and purify and cleanse all things pertaining to impurity and defilement and again would dwell with his people. This would, of course, bring Israel the hope and a consolation, as they often talked about, that while we are exiled, we know that one day the temple will be restored. And when it does, you could imagine how they were just dreaming of a pilgrimage, dreaming of doing whatever they could to go and pilgrimage to Jerusalem where they could enter into that great pilgrim festivity of again hearing the gospel preached, sacramentally participated in by the altar of sacrifice. And oh, the vision of even the Babylonians, even the Assyrians, even the Egyptians, that they might too see this great, beautiful, glorious presence of God in Jerusalem and by the lights that shone above the temple and the mount of, of, of the temple that they would be drawn to that light. And they would make pilgrims too. And there'd be a place to welcome them called the court of the Gentiles, always there in the Solomonic temple. A place that says, you're welcome here. Please come. Where you can hear and, and describe, he described this incredible gift that God's offering to you, all nations of God's people who would come. The major prophets there was then foreshadowed of this restoration but all in a way that eventually led to yet it getting perverted again. You have what is described as Zerubbabel's temple. Of, you hear about it in Ezra, where in 538 BC, Cyrus of Babylon issued a decree by which exiled Jews were allowed to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. 
Ezra was finished of this project in 515 BC. There was corresponding renewal of the Old Testament ordinances and sacrifices. Oh, but it was nothing like the former temple. And we see that the reforms were short-lived. It entered into a major crisis yet again in 167 BC when the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes plundered the temple, placing an altar to Zeus, Olympus, on the altar of the burnt offerings. Oh. Three years later, Judas Maccabus led a political and military revolt and recovered control of the temple and repaired the temple and rededicated it to God. And yet, the theological and sacramental reforms had been replaced with nationalism and political reforms. It became more like our contemporary White House, if you will. At such a time, a very strong anti-Gentile theology emerged. The court of the Gentiles was reused for other things. In 63 BC, the temple was again plundered, this time by entrance of the Roman general Pompey. The destruction continued until 37 by Herod's taking over of Jerusalem. And there we had a thoroughly politicized and secularized temple. To understand Herod's temple is to understand the scene of the temple that Jesus encountered. That was the temple that Jesus walked into. You see, at great expense, Herod the Great beautified the temple even beyond the glory of Solomon, outwardly speaking. And yet, he beautified it that it might be a shrine to Roman nationalism and to his nice compromise with the Jews. And the same, it was the right of... And all of this began to happen. Perhaps most significantly, it was the site of holy pilgrimages, though. These very people who Cyrus earlier in the Babylon had, had allowed now to pilgrimage, you cannot imagine the pilgrimages, the number of pilgrimages, and the number of people that would come into Jerusalem to see this glorious rebuilt temple, only to discover, if they even knew the difference, that the inwardness if you will, of the temple was nothing like what God's original temple was all about. You see, once the pilgrims arrived, two major transactions would need to be accomplished. One, an annual temple tax. Now, this would need to be paid, the amount of one shekel, and the temple currency was different from Rome, so they established a bank. That's right. A basically a, uh, an exchange, a financial exchange system, of, a money exchange system right there. Where do you think? In the court of Gentiles. And secondly, you would need an offering. Remember, the whole point of the temple was to offer a sacrifice that you might be proclaimed and absolved of your sins. So an offering would need to be purchased so as to make that sacrifice. Now, in the earlier days... That whole thing, that marketplace of transactions would be happening on the Mount of Olives facing the temple. The court of Gentiles remained intact. Now, it wasn't very convenient to go up the mountain over there and buy your doves. 
It wasn't very convenient to have to do your transactions. Wouldn't it be much easier if you get there and, and, and you can just right there on site do all this stuff? And what's the heck, you know? It's just the court of Gentiles. That's the world. Therefore, alongside of the religious aspects of the temple, there was a worldliness about the temple, a perversion of, of this typological temple. The administration was under the control of Rome, a synergism in the church and the state, if you will. And this place would have looked more like an open market bustling with activity and with price negotiations all. And all of this was performed in what was called this court of Gentiles. I can't say it enough. Okay. What's happening to you in that story that I just told you? What are you seeing in your mind? It's into that scene. It's into that moment of all of redemptive history that the one who John introduces as the temple of God walks in and sees the temple for what it is. You may think by reading this passage that Jesus is some kind of a wild man. That's the image I know I had. It's interesting, I mentioned in Compline the other day that John's version wants to make the case that when he saw it, he, he went and made a whip. That would have taken maybe a couple of days. It was intentional. It was very, very thought out. So much so that the way you see that in Matthew's gospel, a little more so than in Matthew's gospel, is that Matthew wants to show that in everything he did, you could trace it to what the prophets said the Lord would do. Literally quoting these incredible passages. In Isaiah 56, the foreigners and the foreigners, this is the way that 56 says it, what, what Jesus saw. And the foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer again. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted to my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. Quoted in Matthew. For all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. You hear what the prophecy is? I will make this temple missional again when I restore it. I will bring in my great prophet and he will restore the temple to be a place where the world, the Gentiles, the foreigners would be made welcome. And it interprets everything Jesus did in terms of turning over those, those tables of financial transactions and, and negotiations and, and replacing it with the place, the court of the Gentiles. Jeremiah 7 has this house which is called by my name you heard it read over and over again become a den of robbers in your sight you know I too am watching says the Lord there it is I mean I just I, I don't know God forgive me I just don't know how to put this into words that the eternal temple of God Jesus the Christ is sitting in that temple that place and so what then was Christ objecting to according to these quotations? Trade of any kind. In the apparent allusion to Zechariah as he mentions it. Dishonesty and greed on the part of the traders. Greed that was excluding the very people that God had come to save. 
the foreigners, as well as Israel. The misappropriation of the one courtyard where Gentiles would worship and therefore depriving them of the right to become seekers and go through the rites of passage that would enable them to eventually become a communicant member at the Lord's table, if you want to put it in those terms. A place that was rid of the baptism and the story and the way in which you come to Christ through professing faith. It just wasn't a convenient And so you have this incredible, amazing moment where Jesus was appalled at the disregard for the sanctity of an area concentrated for use by Gentiles who had not yet become fully proselytized to Judaism. His actions were an astonishing display of the zeal, the passion of God's honor and the efficacy of his presence. For Matthew, this event represented a turning point. It's this moment where the story will turn and Jesus will walk out in person effect the sacrifices of the temple that took him to the cross. It's the first stage of a return was here. The Lord really had returned to his temple and was cleaning house, you could say. It represented the beginning of the end for the temple. We know, again, that the temple would eventually be destroyed in 70 AC. This very temple that to this day does not exist. And there doesn't seem much zeal from the Lord to restore it. Or was there? When Jesus comes to the disciples after he was raised, You remember what he said to them? He first blessed them. He gave them the temple benediction. He literally, in John's version, was doing what Matthew said in his version. Matthew said, upon this rock, what rock? Dome? Peter? Yeah, together. Upon this rock I will build what? My church, my assembly. I will bind on earth that which is bound in heaven, exus mundi and against which nothing will prevail against it. John's virgins, he gave them a benediction. He then gave them a commission, as the Father sent me. How? I'm a temple. As the Father sent me as temple, I now send you to be the temple. And he breathed his spirit upon them, that they may forgive sins. Wow. And everywhere in the apostles, we see that doctrine church now is the sacred temple of God, the place of dwelling. Any and all churches that are built upon the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone have become that church, such that we should treat it no less holy than Jesus Christ does. Is there then a holy place where God dwells with his people? Absolutely. The house of God is distinctly used of the church in Ephesians 2.18 and many other places. We're called the holy temple in the New Testament. We're called the dwelling place in the New Testament. We're called by the Spirit presence in the New Testament. First Corinthians, do you not know you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You can hear Paul's frustration. Do you not understand the zeal of the Lord for you and what you are going to do when you come together 
in this holy, holy place that we call the church of Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. On and on it goes. What's the take home here? I, you know, I, I'm tempted to say nothing. <laughs> and let you just really, let us all just really just stop and let the Spirit speak into our hearts about it. I'll maybe say a few words. I mean, ask God, would you? Search your heart without my words, but just search, searching our heart. And have we lost maybe a little bit in my heart this passion, this zeal for God's house, his place? Do we see the gravitas of what we must fight to preserve when it is in syncretistic manners and habits with the world, when it is slowly losing its missional intent and purpose, when we want to make it into a tribe rather than to the whole world, and we do that while proclaiming the, you know, you got to understand, all through this period, people are still saying they're worshiping Yahweh. But we do it by our practices. We do it by our policies. We do it by our manners. We do it in ways that we start to compromise because we less believe in the power of God's supernatural power to build his church. And we more and more and more and more and more begin to synergize with the powers of this world. And those powers of this world begin to encroach upon itself. We want to make it popular. That's no different than worshiping Baal. We want to make it more prosperous. We want to do this. We want to do that all for the Lord. But all of a sudden we see ourselves doing it and we realize that the holy and sacred of the place is getting lost. And it's the casualness of these little compromises. You know, let's, let's pray about it. What would, what, would, what would it mean for us? The pilgrimage to this church every Sunday. What sacrifice could it be that we would need to do that? Because we would see it as such a great event that no event in the world could possibly compare to it. How would we raise our children with the zeal of the Lord? Would we just make compromise after compromise after compromise so as not to appear to be a bad teammate, maybe? whatever other things there could be. What do we see as parents and how do we see the church and how is it that we engage this church? Do we speak of it casually or reverently? We could go on and on. Is there room for a prophet here today to speak into our lives and say, examine yourselves, CPC? Starting from the top all the way down, just taking a moment, maybe this weekend, to say, God, reveal my heart, reveal my mind, help me to know, is there any evidence that I'm taking this place too casually? How much do we love her? That's the question here that I'm hoping will come about, because Jesus loved her 
very much. And I know that's who we say we want to follow. And if God in his grace, and I say grace, convicts you of sin, be encouraged. He has not forsaken you. He loved you to send a prophet, the prophet of the Holy Spirit, speaking through his word, I mean, not me, not just the prophet of God through the Spirit speaking to you. Oh, the conviction of sin is the sure sign that God has not left you. And then he directs us to the very table that we will now go to, the very table at the very center of the Holy of Holies of this place we call the Temple Church of God. And we receive absolution yet again. We remember that in the conviction of sins, there is also mercy. And the very mercy that saves us, the very love that saves us, is the love that then motivates us to reform. And the cycle gets refreshed. We love because he first loved us, right? Perfect love, there is no fear. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.